Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Dear students, Dr. Andres, Anne-Marie, what a pleasure to be here tonight for the second time during this year that we have a, an exchange around our prize holder of the Dr. Michel Endres Prize 2019, Professor Anne-Marie Slaughter. Now, the first time for you, for those of you who were here, um, we discussed the global new order. And uh, when we awarded the prize to you, Anne-Marie, we decided um, this is what you deserve the prize for and not the stuff which you've become so well known for through your publication in the uh, Atlantic uh, in 2012. And uh, we really wanted to signal to everyone, no, that's just a tiny little sub hobby, so to speak. And you would go to the opera, you would write pieces for the Atlantic. Uh, and uh, uh, we wanted to focus our first discussion with you on this global substance. But then everyone at the Hertie School came back to me and said, you cannot have Anne-Marie Slaughter here as the prize holder for a year and not discuss diversity and not discuss uh, the topic of tonight, which is changing social models for women and men. And so I'm very delighted you are back. And we have a fantastic panel uh, that will be hosted by two students. And uh, I would like to introduce them. And they will introduce the fantastic panel. Um, but I wouldn't want to do that without briefly saying a few words about the Dr. Michel Endres Prize, um, which is a research prize that honors distinguished academics whose work uh, centers on topics within the spectrum of what we do at the Hertie School. And uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter is the second prize holder uh, in this uh, Endres series. And uh, uh, from next year, the person will then also stay in residence and uh, teach classes here, which is a nice way for us to honor one of the founding fathers of the Hertie School of Governance, who had that fantastic idea uh, around 20 years ago to say Berlin needs a public policy school. Uh, every large capital in the world has one. Um, London has the LSE, Sciences Po is in Paris, and so on. And there should be one in Berlin. And today, uh, Berlin is growing in importance as the German capital, as the capital of Europe, some say as the capital of the free world. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, but clearly, we deserve a strong and globally visible public policy school. And this is why we're so grateful to you, Dr. Andres, and to the Hertie Foundation for having given us all the support over the past years that we have these terrific students, some of which are in the room tonight, and a fantastic audience. And with that, I would like to close. This morning, um, when I told my 13-year-old uh, son that I was not going to be at home for dinner, he asked me why. And I said, well, I have to open uh, this great discussion about, you know, profession, family, uh, men, women. And he looked at me and said, why does mom go there? <laughs> and I think he had a point. With that, I now turn it to our two student moderators, Pauline Agarev, who is the 2019 um, Master of International Affairs candidate at the school of, uh, at, our, at our school. She is the executive director of the Governance Post, which is our student publication, uh, which you can download, which you can see on the web everywhere. Um, for the past 10 years, she has been working as news editor and a Berlin-based correspondent working on German and European affairs. Um, it's great, Polina, you're here. And we have Manuel Clemens, uh, who is also in the class of 2019 in the MPP program. Uh, 
and he is member of the Gender Equality and Sexuality Club, where you had a discussion this afternoon, Anne-Marie. Uh, he's part of the club's leadership team and is currently actually um, also working in the Federal Ministry for Labor and Social Affairs Unit that is concerned with the reconciliation of work and family life. So the next time I get this kind of question, I'll turn to you. But now I turn it to you for hosting tonight's debate. Welcome and have a great evening. Thank you very much. So now it is our pleasure to introduce you, honored panelists. But first, again, thank you, Professor Underline, for the introduction and to the Hurdy School for the opportunity uh, to moderate tonight's event. I know we're very excited. Uh, but first, um, I want to introduce Emery Slaughter, who is the CEO of New America, a think and action um, tank dedicated to renewing uh, America in the digital age. I really like this title. Um, <laughs> from 2002 to 2009, she was the dean of Princeton Woodrow Wilson School for Public and International Affairs. And from 2009 till 2011, she was director of uh, policy planning at the US State Department. Uh, and in both uh, roles, I think you were the first woman to hold them. So that's definitely interesting. Um, and uh, Andrew Moravchik, professor of politics and director of the European Union program at Princeton University. You're the author of more than uh, 125 scholarly publications on topics ranging from uh, um, international, uh, international uh, affairs, uh, European integration, uh, international law and human rights. And you're also in Marie's husband, we should mention. <laughs> Furthermore we, are happy, <laughs> furthermore, we are happy to have here with us tonight on our panel Anna-Christina Gronert. She's the chairwoman of the German Diversity Carter, which is a corporate initiative to promote diversity in companies and institutions. In the past, she has served as managing partner talent and partner EMEA Financial Services at EY until 2017, and was a board member in charge of HR at Allianz Germany until recently. The fourth panelist we were planning to have here tonight, um, Katrin Suda, unfortunately had to cancel her participation tonight due to illness. Uh, we are sending her our best wishes for fast recovery and are starting with our three panelists. Thank you. <laughs> So when Manuel and I first sat down to plan this discussion, uh, we weren't really sure where to begin. I mean, the topic of equality um, is, has so many facets, so many, exp uh, I would say, expressions in both our professional lives and in our personal lives. So it's difficult to unpack. Um, one thing is clear, though. Our world is changing. Technological advances are opening up new opportunities for all. Our understanding of gender roles is definitely evolving. And yet nothing seems to be getting easier when it, <laughs> when it comes to work-life balance, when it comes to uh, managing both the expectations of your career and also the needs of your family. The challenges are still there. Um, so what we'll try to do today is understand why is it so, and more importantly, what can be done about this. Uh, but first, let's see if we're on the same page here when it comes to no is also an acceptable answer. But we're talking here about real equality. 
And I thought it would be for important even to ask, what, how do you see real equality? I mean, this can mean different things to different people. And I was wondering, would you say that we need to reach an agreement regarding what is real equality? If it's, maybe we don't. Uh, and if so, how do you imagine this looking? Well, I'll start. First of all, I'm, I'm thrilled to be back uh, and grateful uh, to be the prize winner, uh, prize holder for this year. And it's particularly nice, I think, to have a chance to talk about these issues as well as international relations, the world order, public problem solving. Uh, I think it, it underlines part of what I see as real equality, which means being able to be a whole person in everything that you do. Uh, and part of what we all do, we all have some private life, uh, whether it's a biological family or a constructed family, why we, whether we have children or not, we all have people that we care for. Uh, and real equality to me means a world in which uh, those, that care side of our lives and the care obligations, because our children are now 20 and 22, but they still <laughs> demand time, uh, different kinds of care, but that those, that side of human life is not presumed to be the province of the woman, that it is presumed to be the province of all of us, that different people, depending on who they are, what their personality is, what their life circumstances are, Obviously, we are speaking from a position of privilege where we've had choices, uh, many don't, uh, but that it's a function of those things. It's a function of who wants to do what, who is better at doing what, how life evolves uh, when you have a family, rather than where we are now, which is the presumption is that's woman's job, and she also can be a full professional. Whereas men are seen only really primarily as breadwinners and not as caregivers. So for me, real equality would be caregiving and breadwinning is equally distributed according to personality and preference, not according to gender. Perhaps you care to weigh in as well? Yeah, I would love to add. First of all, I'm honored to be here as well. Um, and uh, just taking your point, I think really equality is when we meet each other and we are open-minded in all the perspectives someone brings to the table. And it's not a role model or a description how to be in a role or um, describing you know, behaviors that are dedicated to a role you play as a woman, as a man, as someone caring whoever, in what dimension of diversity um, we just, we have to get there, as we all know, then if we meet each other with open minds, we are far more innovative, we are far more able to meet all the changing environmental challenges we have, but we are still stuck in our roles and our description and our prejudice. And I think whenever you meet someone, you are open-minded, you have you know, something to create, something new, and that's where we have to get to. So, but when we talk about equality, I, I do have a question for you, and this definitely is the male representative of the, the panel, but first, just uh, to address the, the female point of view here, we talk about equality as if it's a female issue. 
um, often in, in public discourse, it's framed as if this is topic relevant only for women, it's concerning only for women. Uh, but no matter how you look at it, it affects more than just women. If you're talking about work-life balance or sexual harassment in the workplace, this is a topic that is relevant for all workers. If you're talking about balancing the demands of your family and your career, that is as relevant for fathers as it is to mothers. So should we change the framing of this debate, make this more of a gender neutral debate in order to advance the cause? Or still some of the challenges are so unique to women um, that it's fair to talk about this in this uh, realm? Um, uh, I think this is exactly right. So I agree with, with you know, both my colleagues that it's about choice. And so you have to ask yourself, whose choices are constrained by the society, the culture, the institutions around them? And I think you could argue that men's choices today are more constrained than women's choices, uh, or at least as constrained as women's choices. Women, after all, can choose, at least in theory, and would be socially accepted for choosing a professional role, a family role, some mix of the two. Not true for men. Um, men are expected to have the professional role and expected to really strive in that area. Um, moving to the other role calls their social identity into question, and I think it also calls their self-identity into question. Like, what is the role of a man who is the lead parent or the man who plays the role that we would traditionally associate with women? And this, I think, is the central policy issue in dealing with this. Because we've done a lot in recent years to encourage women to enter the workplace, uh, to give them more opportunities to deal with at least the most overt forms of discrimination. But we've done very little to make men's role more flexible. In the first six months, yes, some men take parental leave, although it's famous that in many cases they have to be compelled to do so, as Sweden does, uh, because there's a certain social opprobrium connected with that. But after that, it's a very odd role for a man to take to say, I'm going to step back from my job for a time. I'm going to do less. I'm going to go part time. I'm not going to show up for this meeting because my 10-year-old or my 15-year-old, my teenager, is having a crisis. If a woman did that, people would understand it. If a man does it, they don't. The result of that is that, at least in the United States, the statistics suggest that only 4% of families, uh, married families, uh, have a situation in which the man does more housework and childcare than the woman. And that's a very small number. That is the binding constraint on both women's ability to increase their realm of choice and men's ability to increase their realm of choice. Because speaking as somebody who took that choice, um, there are many satisfying things about being the lead parent for a time in your life that I think most men have no imagination about. Uh, so I think this is absolutely a gender neutral debate. It has to be because there is no way to solve this policy problem without the active participation of men whose social role is conceived in a different way. So I'm going to agree, but but underline a little bit, a little difference, maybe. This is our uh, <laughs> yes, I was going <laughs> to. Was wondering how long it would take us to disagree. Uh, so it is true that if a woman says, I have to go home because I have a child in crisis, it'll be understood 
but she will certainly be thought less of. Now, Andy's point is men will too, and, and their masculinity will even be called into question in a way that for a woman, her femininity is not in question, but her professionalism certainly is. So to your question, it's gotta be both and. I think we have to talk about this as, as changing male gender roles as much as female gender roles. And, and there also you bring in same-sex couples, right, for whom the same, the same issue is true, where you have two mothers or two fathers, and one is a caregiver and the other is the bread principal breadwinner or both, however, but you, you, have to, you have to bring in that caring role. But there are also unique constraints still on women because women aren't equal in the workplace. So we have to do both. I think we have to have women who see this. It, it, it is a women's issue, but as long as it's only a women's issue, Andy's right. We won't, we won't make the progress we need until it's a human issue. I'm so lucky that you disagree to the point. <laughs> because yes, it's true, we can do that role and me being a member in the boardroom of a very male-dominated uh, environment, so financial services is very male-dominated. Um, you can be there, but still, as I said before, you have a role description and you have a way to be as a leader and that's the role model of the past. So the people look at you and say in the beginning, so what is she doing there in that room? Because my description or my, how I grew up, the role model of a leader, we don't have a CEO in Germany yet, a female CEO. We only have a few board member, a female board member in all the DAX companies. And I think we have a new study coming out today with the Albright study saying, out of the stock companies, like 150 companies don't have a female board member at all. So the description of a board member of a DAX company is, you know, very male dominated. So you can be there, but still you're, you, you're faced with a prejudice saying how to be as a leader of a company like that. You know, you have a dominant brand, you have a very... Um, clear view of how to be. So we're just breaking those ceilings, <laughs> saying, you know, you can be different. And even though we can, you know, be part in the boardroom, we still have the same thing coming home. So me, I have three children coming home at school. Um, wherever kind of festivals, I bought the cake and I didn't bake it because I didn't have the time. So it's like, um, you know, like the movie, do I smash it a little so it looked like self-baked or do I bring it as, you know, I, I took it off the shelf. So how do I want to be today and what kind of discussion do I want to have? You know, what, what are people asking me? And in the beginning of my career, people start asking me, you know, where are your children? I say, at home. <laughs> so what are they doing? They're all without you. I say, well, usually they sit in the corner and sometimes someone comes some, some <laughs> time and feeds them. And then they, it's like, okay. So, you know, it's like you, you are faced with all the prejudice. My husband did part-time working. And um, we have done that together over the last 21 years now and found our way around, but 21 years with all those questions. You know, it's like, how did you do it? Is it are you able to do it? 
what do your children look like? What do they do? Are they in school? Did they fail or did they manage? So all those questions you are faced with. And we have to overcome those questions. Well, we're definitely going to touch upon the persisting stereotypes uh, in both societies. Uh, but first, then another question to Andrew, though. Uh, you mentioned the role of men in this discussion. And I think this is the one thing that you and Marie can agree on, that we need to involve men in the conversation. The question is how? How do we get men to understand that they are part of the debate? Um, so I was lucky in this regard. I think it's a, it's a question of the social environment mostly as, as well as the cultural debate. So I was lucky because I'm a professor and a professor is a flex time profession. Um, and it's also one once you get established that you've, you know, if you don't publish anything for six months or nine months, people don't go crazy as long as you make it up at some point. So that's a, that's a very helpful thing. And one of the things Anne-Marie pointed out in her book is that one of the ways to think through this problem, if you're thinking about how you're going to live your life, is to think about it in episodes. Like at this point, I'm going to step back a bit or spend more time in the family or work part time. At that time, I'm going to do more career-wise and trade off and so on. And that's very possible in an academic setting. But I think there are other settings, and I take this from the experience of the United States, that you don't expect to be settings that are um, congenial to this kind of social change, but are. So when we both published things on this and did media, um, I got lots of emails, and by far, the largest number of positive, constructive, detailed, optimistic emails were for members of the United States military, which really surprised me. And I thought, why? And I was reading these things, trying to figure out what it was. Okay, these are conservative people socially. They care about family. Uh, so it's important for them to really commit to taking care of their kids. They don't have issues with their masculinity. If you've gone and fought people in Afghanistan, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> you can take your daughters to school. Um, <laughs> uh, they, uh, they have really firm career constraints. A lot of two career military couples Woman gets sent to Afghanistan for six months, and the guy has to take care of the kids. Really, no questions asked. That's the way the military is. And importantly, you have an employer who wants to retain you. So what happens is that the Pentagon has been unbelievably flexible about how to deal with things. And people would write me letters about, you know, the Virginia school system changed the closing times of schools, and my daughters couldn't be picked up. I had to do this and that and the other thing. So we went to the colonel, and the colonel says, OK, we'll work that out. Right? So I think when I look at our lives where, to some extent, we manage this, it's because of this kind of combination of factors, institutions that have an incentive to help you, um, careers that are flexible in some ways, uh, and a culture in which this is an accepted thing to do. And I just add, I think, as as this this is one of the ways to tackle the issue, which is in a in a world in which many firms are fighting for talent, you are losing you know half or more of your top talent by not acknowledging the needs of caregiving and really competitive. Institutions can't can afford to do that. And it, as I know, you're on the front lines of making that argument. We've been making that argument for a long time. Uh, but I do, I do think, and as, as a CEO myself, where every time you lose someone, 
you know, you're not at all sure you're going to get a good person to replace them. They have to be trained. The transaction costs are very high. Uh, and often the changes you need to make to keep that person are not, are not nearly as costly as the changes of constant churn. So at least we hope uh, it's, it's one, as, as there is a war for talent, it should get better. Thank you very much for this already. Um, in the next part of the discussion, we would like to have a closer look at the inequalities that we can actually observe. Talk also about the differences maybe between the US and Germany, because we have experts from both countries here on the panel. Um, and also try to get a better understanding of the problems that we're talking about. For example, in terms of gender equality, German politicians often put forward the labor market participation of women has almost reached the same level than male labor market participation. But when we look at other indicators like earnings, we get a completely different story. Um, a study published last month, for example, investigates child penalties in earnings of men and women in different countries. That means how much lower the earnings of mothers and fathers are up to 10 years after childbirth compared to what they were earning before they were a parent. The striking finding is that while earnings for men remain relatively stable after childbirth, the earnings of women drop significantly, and then they don't really recover. The long-run child penalty of women is 31% in the US and even 61% in Germany. Yeah, it's, it was really striking. So it can be assumed, actually, that a large part of this drop in earnings is due to higher shares of part-time work amongst uh, women than, it is, than, than men are working in part-time. So to Anna Christina, the question is, what do you think about this German model of the man is the breadwinner and the woman is working in part-time um, that many people in Germany choose to reconcile, or that many women choose to reconcile work and family life? Is this a dead end for careers? I mean, this is an ongoing discussion since 15 years now. So I entered 27 years ago um, in the workforce, and I've been discussing this topic about 15 years. Employability, being an attractive employer, it's obvious it's, that you have to you know, really talk about the issue. And as you just said, the gender pay gap, we can, uh, we can discuss how wide it is, but it is there. Yeah, whatever kind of job you compare. So we are in between 25% to if the people start discussing, um, you can lower it down to 8%. Or if you're very good in arguing, you can lower it down to 7%. But it's still there. So um, there are so many different things that we have to do, different instruments. But with, uh, what we can see is like everyone is entering the workforce, even um, 50-50% from uh, female-male, as we've just said, representative in the workforce. But then, of course, you know, you see in the boardrooms six or five. I can't recall. I don't want to recall that number because it's not changing since 10 years now, even though we have the quota. So it's obvious that we do have an issue. And we all work on it, but we are not getting there where we have to get, and we are far too slow. And a follow-up to Anne-Marie uh, about the same issue, because in your book, um, Unfinished Business, you actually talk about the mummy track, mm -hmm. that um, women who choose to work part-time or make use of flexible work arrangements are putting themselves on or are being put on. Um, this mummy track, as you describe, is the opposite of the leadership track. 
So it seems that in our current working cultures, it is almost impossible to make use of the policies that we have, part-time work, flexible working arrangements, and still stay on the track for promotion. So can you answer or give us your insights about why this is the case and what can be done to change that? Yeah. So there are some glimmers of hope uh, in the... Uh, I, 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 I'm, my guess is this is true at EY. I know it's true at Deloitte. The, some of the big professional services firms have partners who made it working part-time, or at least working part-time for part of the time. So part of it is, <laughs> is demonstrating that, you know, just because you're not working full-time, you didn't lose half your IQ, right? I mean, you, you, you just simply made a choice to spend your time differently. You're actually, you still hold the degrees you held, you still have the client relationships, you're still plenty intelligent, um, you're able to do this. Glimmers, but those are some, that didn't happen before, but it's a little bit in law firms too. Again, uh, just a bit, but uh, in law firms, increasingly, people are making partner and then choosing to work flexibly uh, on a project basis. And so I want to say something a little more radical. I, I still think we have a long way to go. I still think um, more, more women running firms and more enlightened men running firms can adopt policies uh, that will be far more flexible, retain the workforce, and everybody will be happier. But I do actually question earnings as the measure. Because in the world that I want, people will, be, will want a range of compensation. And I have routinely turned down jobs where I could have made more money because I didn't, I had an, the money that I required, and I, I recognize that that's a privileged statement, but that I wanted a relationship with my children, my husband, my family. I wanted time to do things. I think a, a vision in which you know the people who are somehow the happiest and the best are the people who are paid the most is a highly, not just male view, it's an alpha male view. It's a very na narrow male view of what's important. And I, you know, think about the countless men who, you know, the first marriage was sacrificed to their career and they never saw their children. And then the second time around, they get married again and they discover that actually, you know, engaging with your family has all sorts of benefits. And look at how, and, uh, no, but also the number of men who are lonely at the end of their lives, right? I mean, I say this, we're, we're talking a lot in the United States about different visions of capitalism and how, how are we going to get to a sustainable economy. This is not a way of saying, oh, let's not worry about the pay gap. We should worry about the pay gap. But it is to say that real equality would not be a world in which women become what men have been. It would be a world in which women and men were freer to decide what was important to them uh, and to value both. Because again, I think there are plenty of men who are none too happy about the roles that they have been slotted into and about the value system that we, we all uh, accept. Can I, can I add something? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this gets back to the role of men, right? This is absolutely critical because, by the way, statistically, I mean, polling, if you ask men at the end of their lives, what's the number one thing that they regret? They say not spending more time with family and friends. 
Um, so in the long term, this will benefit men if you can engineer this kind of social change. But this seems to me really the binding constraint because whether you measure by earnings or whatever, the problem is really the number of hours in a day. And if you're living in a country like the United States where only 4% of the families, the man does more than his share of the housework. Um, or in Germany, I, there's a scholar here, I think Marake Bühning at the WZB, who I was uh, actually emailing with about um, the German statistics, which are done differently than the American ones. But you can see in that critical age, uh, 30 to 45, um, that women are spending essentially five hours a day on the average in Germany doing housework and childcare, um, and, uh, and about three of those hours on children. Um, and then there's just this big bulge in the middle, and you cannot get over that to the world where men and women can choose or make different choices at different points in their life how to balance that unless men are more flexible. It's just statistically not possible. So what needs to happen is that the institutions and culture needs to make that flexibility feasible. May I add something too? Because during my UI time, I have looked in several companies and looking at gender pay gap reports. And we have been working with several companies and with EY as well. And it's not about that we all want to have the same. It's about if we do the same job, yeah. we'll we want the same pay. <laughs> and we have seen, I mean, I've, as I said, been in this discussion for years now, but during the last 10 years, we narrowed in a few companies the pay gap for the same job by from, from 10 to 5% by only showing the people during the promotion and rating period um, the female and the male distribution and promotion and ratings. And that was so obvious. We only had a little Excel tool. You know, after you had your round table, you talk about do we promote her or him? Do we give them a better rating or worse rating? And as soon as you have a team, there is a distribution as a normal distribution of Gauss. It couldn't be any different, as you said, from female and male because, I mean, they had the same you know, basic knowledge. Yeah. And so we really had to put this little Excel tool in the roundtable discussion to change that. And it, it, it's, it's just a little instrument, but showing how much prejudice and how much role modeling is within the discussion of promotions and ratings and how pres you prescribe a leader to be. And... Um, so there is a lot of work to be done with the pay gap in matters of if you do the right, the same job, then you have to have the right pay. I want to follow up on a topic that, Andrew, you just raised, um, the issue of how to share the, the care responsibilities within the family or between a couple. Because I think <laughs> this issue is actually key, as you have already said, in moving towards more equality between men and women. And what we can often observe is that even in progressive couples um, that distribute responsibilities, housework equally, as soon as the first child comes into play, is born, this often changes. And often couples after this are falling back into the stereotypical model of the man, the man is the breadwinner and the woman is the caregiver. Why is that and what can we do to achieve more equal distribution of care responsibilities within the household? 
Well, as I mentioned before, this is the problem, right? At least in the United States, I think Germany is a little more problematic with regard to cultural values, particularly in the corporate sector. That's an impression from you know, dealing with people at big banks and so on. But, uh, um, but I know the statistics in the United States pretty well. And to a first approximation, um, there is no gender gap for people who don't have kids. Um, and so the gender gap is almost entirely due to this load, and it's connected with the fact that almost all that excess work is done by uh, women, and with too few hours in the day, it's, it's not possible to do everything. And so men have that advantage, and unless we break that constraint, it can't be changed. Um, I think that um, at that point, um, you know, we, we need to talk about the cultural and institutional and social solutions we, we raised before. But I, I mean, to your point about it, what made the difference for us was I had a semester off and then he had a semester off. And so very young, right, for the second six months, he got the better six months because they do a lot more in the second six months than the first six months. Um, it, but, but for those six months, it was really up to him. I was back teaching. Um, he was in charge. And that meant, you know, he, we were both new parents. I mean, we were both figuring it out. It's not like I had some kind of genetic code that said, oh, baby, now I do this. We were figuring it out. Uh, and uh, so, but he was the one, you know, who figured out how to get him to, to our oldest son to sleep, to eat, to, you know, do just what you do with a child. And it, it was very important in two ways. One, he was just as competent as I was, right? I mean, he, he figured it out. Um, and two, I had to let him be, right? So this is the other piece of this. And this is, some of you already heard me say this today, but I, I did have this kind of ingrained, well, I'm mom, so I know best, right? Now, when a man says that in the office, I'm none too happy with the view, right? If you, you know, you're a man, so you know better at work? No, you know, you. but in the same way that men have seen men have seen men have seen men in the office, women have seen women have seen women in the house, and we definitely had to go back and forth and have had to all the way through our children's uh, childhood that, you know, his attitude was, I'm in charge, I'm at home. If you want to be in charge, you can come home. Um, but who says your way is better? And that was a big adjustment for me. But I think it's been good for our children, even if it's been a lot of tug of war. And that's key psychologically if you want to motivate men to take what we call lead parenting role. They have to actually, it's like an employee also, you know, you, you have to give them a certain amount of autonomy to do things the way, you have to enable them to do things the way they want to do it. And sometimes that's a little jarring for the partner. So and when Emery was working for Hillary and she wasn't home for, you know, 10 days at a crack, and, uh, you know, sometimes things would get a little crazy at home. And so she calls home and she says, are you all sitting down to dinner and sitting? I said, well, actually, we ordered out for pizza and we're playing poker. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, we had two sons. They need to learn how to play poker was my sense. So, um, but, but that was the way I wanted to do it. And at some point we realized you cannot micromanage the other person's stuff. You know, that's and, and you have to trust each other as well because people call you. It's like me, friends of mine called me and said, you know, my, 
my third child was still in the stroller and my, my husband was riding the bicycle with the other both and just hold on the stroller <laughs> in the back. And then a friend of mine called me and said, do you know what your husband is doing with your children? And I was going like, sounds dangerous, but deep breathing helps right. and say, why, he will, he will know what he's doing. Of course, I, I called it home, what have you done? <laughs> but, you know, you have to trust and you have to be uh, one, one front to the children and to your yes. environment because there are tons of people arguing around, are you doing the right thing or not? It's like me buying a convertible. It was like it was a whole big deal in the neighborhood to be discussed. <laughs> because, of course, my husband should have had this BMW, the big one, and he doesn't care about cars. Yeah, that's so exactly it's, nice. it's the whole discussion about it is you really have to stay together and make the children being proud of what you're doing as well because the children are faced with things as well. So as soon as you are in the press, you, you know that people, I mean, Children or, or school friends come to my children and say, is this your mother? And what is she doing? She's working in Munich now. You're living in Hamburg. That sounds very complicated. So they have to just stand up and being proud and saying, yes, my mother has a responsible role in a company. They are working on a digital transformation. And the other one goes like, what are they doing? <laughs> and then the discussion stops. So there's a lot to do within your family and then a lot of within your survival role. <laughs> so discussing with all the friends. It could be your parents as well arguing all the time. It's like. Well, I like how you stir the conversation into solutions, which is perfect. <laughs> I like this proactive approach. Um, and let's really then delve into the solutions aspect of, uh, of the problem, I hope. Um, so you mentioned several arenas here. I think Anna Cristina talked about the boardroom, what happens in the discussions when you decide who to promote, who to give a raise to. Um, and Marie and Andrew, you're a wonderful example of a different kind of uh, burden sharing at home. Um, and we can also bring into discussion the role of the policymaker and uh, more of a top-down approach when it comes to bringing change. My question to you, where is the starting point if you want to affect change? If you had to choose one of those uh, arenas, where would you begin uh, if you want to, as uh, this debate suggested, bring about real change in today's world? So here... Um, in the United States, if I had to make one change, I could only make one change, where would I start? I would start by providing high-quality, affordable child care for everyone. Uh, because, honestly, right now, child care for two children costs more than the cost of rent in all 50 states. Now, that will force one of the couple out of the workforce, and that one is more likely still to be the woman. So our labor force participation is behind Japan. Behind Japan, now think about that. And that's because of the cost of childcare. So if I had to do one thing, that's what I would do. Then I would provide mandated parental leave 
and I would create the kind of incentives so that the, the father really ha has the same incentives as the mother uh, to take that leave. Because again, competence early on, we always use the examples of, you know, the person who does the taxes for the first time is the person who will do the taxes forever. Trust me on this. Um, but similarly, if you are competent, you know, you've got to have equal competence with the children or you, you end up, you know, being the person who puts the child to bed. Who, who um, So, but that's where, that's where I would, I would start. Now, that's, those are both policy issues. That won't do it unless you change the culture too. But if I had to do one thing in the US, that's where I would start. Probably different I, I have here. seen it all after <laughs> each other. So, you know, we had this um, before the quotas, and we had it before the transparency pay report, and um, all the regulatory parts didn't really bring what we wanted. <laughs> so we now we now at the thirty percent of the supervisory board, female representation, and that makes a lot of people lean back and say we made it the 30 percent but we don't talk about we don't have to talk about it anymore because it's a kpi and we can tick the mm. box and that's not the cultural change so i'm very i mean i'm into really having all the instruments at the same time within the pressure from up above you know like 10 or 15 years ago i would have never talked about the quota and not as a corporate person yeah, <laughs> saying we want something like a regulatory surrounding but we need something more than we have with more consequence management involved and uh, we need all the instruments we have to have in flexibility and working environments where i work how i work and the way i work so part-time home office everything yeah. embedded in the workforce and of course we need more um, but I got over the child care topic because this is how we started yeah. we need more child care environment and I have to admit that once you want to make a career you really have to take care of yourself I mean you have to think about how you want to do it within your family you can't rely on on a system um, you really have to make your choices for a career and we, we always had the children at home with paying someone to take care of for the children and having an additional family surrounding. But we decided to make a career. So I spent all my salaries on childcare during the first 10 years, I think. It's, it really was a choice for a career and having the, family, the, the children and a family surrounding at home. So it's something, I mean, you can recommend, but you have to make your own choice. Would I give the children to a childcare or not? So there is no one answer, I'm sorry to say, because we have seen it all. We need a little bit more push right now from the regulatory environment, because I can see people lean back saying we made the quota and the supervisory board. We see a lot of uh, zeros in the quota on the corporate board level, um, people just saying, I can't find them or I don't want to put any pressure on the existing board that someone could be exchanged. So, I mean, we have seen a lot of change in boardrooms, so, and we don't have any consequence management for that. And we have to add the gender pay gap discussion and reports and transparency. 
And we have to have the corporates really working on what I say, it's like the biases. We have to have role models that are totally different than we what we have seen. And in a, in a changing environment, I have to admit that I can see a lot of people tending to, I want a strong leader because everything is changing and we have so much uncertainty and we all know that we need what is a strong leader should be someone who is inclusive, value in all the different perspectives, but sometimes it's very short-minded because you see a strong leader is what we have seen in the past. Mm. A male, you know, <laughs> white male, 50-year-old leader is just going there and being very strong and, and having the authority. But we know that should be different. But right now we have a tendency that people look for this old strong leader because we have so much uncertainty in the realm. So we really have to have an environment where we have instruments in place and regulatory um, frameworks. So I think different societies are different. And um, <laughs> so there are things you have to do at the governmental level. There are things you have to do at the business level. Uh, there are things you have to do at the level of general culture. But I look around the room, I see lots of younger people. So what I wish I had known at your age about this was how to think about it, right? Because you, you know, the government will do what it will do and businesses will do what they will do, but you have to take control of this process. And the first thing to do is to think very long term. Okay, you're married to somebody and this raising kids is not how am I gonna get through the first year with parental leave, it's not how am I gonna get through the first six years with childcare, it's it's how am I planning for 20 to 25 years in such a way that when we both get done with that 20, 25 years, we both feel that we've maximized our ability to actualize ourselves the way we want to. That means thinking really hard about what kind of balance you want. It means thinking hard about how you're gonna divide that up. So one thing that happened to me, we first you know, rooted into this, this issue, and I'm thinking, I don't even know how to think about this. I went to the one person of the older generation who had had a marriage where he had made career sacrifices for his wife. That was my mentor. Some of you who study international relations know the name, Bob Cohen, um, <laughs> whose wife was sequentially president of Wellesley and president of Duke University. And he moved away from Harvard to other places. He moved so, from Stanford to Brandeis yeah, first, and then Harvard Brandeis to and so on. And he took care of the kids more than she did, and so on along this time. So I went to him and I said, how should I think about this? And the first thing he said was, look, every decision you make at any point in time might not be the optimal decision that you want. What you have to be thinking is 20 to 25 years down the line, it will somehow balance out. And you should have long conversations about what your expectations are. Now, of course, it never comes out the way you think because you change and circumstances change and people get jobs that are totally non-negotiable, like being policy planning director for Hillary Clinton. And you just go, okay, it's all over for two years or four years. Um, but but you, wanna, you wanna constantly be creating that sense that you're sort of in the same place, that you're talking to each other, that you're dealing with this as a couple, and that you know what you want because nothing makes somebody so angry, and I speak from bitter experience, nothing makes you so angry as when you feel like somehow 
it's not the way you want it to be, but you're not really quite sure why. And then your spouse comes gallivanting home saying, yeah, I had a great time and with Secretary Clinton in Israel, and you say, so like, here's the kids, and I'm going to New York for the weekend. You know? So, and and you, you don't even know why you're reacting this way. So the more self-aware you are, and the more you think this through with your chosen partner, um, I think the better a chance you'll have to be happy at the end of it. I'll just say parenthetically that the hardest part of co-parenting, absolutely, and this was before you were really lead parent, was we would each travel. We were both professors. And the, so the person who's home is home with the, the children all weekend. And the person who comes back is exhausted, right? So you come back from Europe, you're jet lagged. All you want to do is crawl into bed. And that is precisely, and it happened in both directions, your spouse says, here, <laughs> right? <laughs> Like I have been on for however many days, your turn, and you know, on you go. <laughs> well, this really ties in nicely with something that you mentioned in your book. Uh, all these ideals that we foster regarding our ability to have to have it all, which are in fact more half truths, because they assume that we can control. Yeah. The timing of professional opportunities, uh, uh, who we marry and if we stay married, how much our children or other people in our care need us and how much we need them. Um, as a big planner, I really took that point yeah. to heart. <laughs> um, and it made me wonder if nothing is under our control and we can't really arrange our lives the way we would like them to go then how do we as young people, and I have many classmates here in the crowd, how can we prepare to balancing the demands of our future careers and our future families at this point in time, where we are right now? Um, so uh, the military says it's more about the planning than the plan. And I do think that's correct, that having a plan is not a bad thing. I mean, it forces you to ask questions and think about what's important to you, and trying to have a plan for yourself and as a couple are important, um, but you have to expect that, that life won't go according to the plan. So you sort of have to do both in the same way. But this is really, this is, what led me to write my article more than anything else was even though I'd had it all, I'd had, I'd had a great life, a great spouse, I'd had money, I'd had a flexible career, I'd had everything. And you know, then we get a teenager who is a really difficult teenager. And I kept calling my own parents saying, do you know how good I was? Do you know how good I was? I mean, he was actually probably a pretty normal teenager in some ways, but he was making very bad life choices. That was a <laughs> minor, I mean, in the, by the standards of what human beings experience, you have a child with a disability, you get a divorce, a parent dies, a spouse dies, you end up having to move, you lose your job, you don't have the money you expected you were going to have. By those standards, ours was nothing, right? We were still really fortunate. But I realized, my God, we've got a society that's blaming the women who are still bearing the brunt of this because somebody's having to make that choice. And a woman who says, I had a child with a disability, I'm stepping out. You know, we should be praising that person, not condemning that person. So it, really why I wrote my article was to say, it's not, and this is, is Sheryl Sandberg and I agree on more than we disagree on, but the, and this was before her husband died. She paid, you know, she's experienced this 
far worse than I ever have. But her approach, and it was still more of a young woman's approach, was it's just about how hard you want it. And it's not. It's about how hard you want it and how much you plan and what happens to you and how fortunate you are and what choices you were born with or, or you, you have. And we need a society that recognizes that, that doesn't penalize women. So maybe just to conclude, uh, also our other panelists could share some advice uh, with our younger members of the audience. How do we prepare for our, what's to come? I think it's probably everything said. It's, it's, first of all, it's your choice, mm. your own choice. And it can be changed during the period of time every day, every minute, every second. So if, if you have made a choice and you feel like, you know, it doesn't work out the way it's just working, step back and be as confident and say, I have to rediscuss the situation. And then it comes back to the trust piece. You know, if you, if you follow, you know, if you follow as a family, you have to trust each other and rely on each other during the whole period of time. So my eldest one wasn't that difficult, but it's difficult now because in university there are so many questions mm. to be asked and so many things to be discussed during whatever kind of meeting I am, I get all those calls. So, I mean, he didn't call with five, 10 or 15 years. So it's really with 21 now, a constant discussion going on and no, I mean, it's just, you're free in between the jobs, mommy. Now you can discuss everything with me right now. <laughs> so you have to you have to be very very flexible during your move. Yeah, but but you have to have the self confidence. Whatever kind of choice you make, it's like it's your choice, and you can stick to it. And um, I I probably have to admit that during my 27 years, I I never stopped in between. I worked the whole time. I never, I never had, you know, part. I, I tried once part time, eighty percent, but I've been working one hundred and twenty. So I wondered why I should get paid eighty percent just because I want to go to a doctor's appointment with the children once a week. So I went back on full time. So um, I worked really hard during those twenty-seven years, and I'm within the charter of diversity and fighting for the issue so much because I want this to change so that you really have the possibility to take the chance to, to, to get off for a period of time and not regretting it later. I probably, I wouldn't recommend how I did it because I feel like a lot of young people look at me and say, oh, you haven't been, you haven't been stopping? Are you feeling, how do you feel? I can see all those faces saying she is a Rabenmutter because she has been with her children during the whole time. Yes, I felt like we did it together. And that's probably the piece. We did it together. The children, my husband and me, and the closest environment did it together. And you just build that and the self-confidence. And I could have made choices differently, but I didn't. So, you know, it's just the way. Be self-confident and decide for yourself. And don't wait someone on, and never ever believe someone who tells you you can't do it. I mean, that's just the personal perspective of someone else. So you always take your own choice. And actually, I'd add one more thing about that, that these, these subjective experiences that make parenting worthwhile, you know, being close to your kids at a critical, critical time, they change too over time. So there was a time when Anne-Marie was gone when, you know, if the kid was sick at night, they would call out for me. 
and there is something very satisfying about that, you know, <laughs> being the parent that your kids really want to call out for. But actually, in, in over, and there were times when it was the opposite. Now it's interesting. They've sort of figured out what each of us are good at. <laughs> like I was the sort of tougher, you know, but practical dad, and uh, um, and and mom is the more, you know, sort of uh, touchy feely mom. Stuff. Yeah, and so <laughs> when this, they figured it models. out, so they when they want one, they call mom, and when they want the other, they call dad. And they and 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 it's kind of gratifying after it's all done that they've both figured this out and are aware that they've figured this out. So they know that human beings have these different sides and it can be different people. And you, in the course of your life, have experienced these. I mean, I really fell into this kind of by accident because it's not a natural social role. I just had a wife who was more successful or busier than I was. Um, and, um, but I wouldn't, have trade, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, it's wonderful to have experienced such a broad variety of, of things. Thank you very much for sharing all these experiences with us. I would now like to open the floor for questions from the audience to our panelists. So do we have questions? Yeah, I see a lot of hands rising. Uh, let's start over here. Again, thank you very much for being here. Um, I read an article the other week which was about children, not about parents but about what children could want. And there was a psychologist who claimed that it's actually what we're doing right now in Germany is really damaging for the children. Because people who have to work six days a week, eight hours a day, give their parents to high quality childcare, but in the end, the children is gonna be there for eight hours with 30 other children all loud in the room. And so I think there's also dangers to having this affordable, high quality childcare to push parents in a role that they don't really want to have is both being the full-time employers. So how can we manage the system so that this won't happen and both have the child of the childcare and the role of a parent? Uh, so <laughs> our children spent more time in childcare than they spent with us and they seem fine. Um, but, 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 and so partly and honestly, uh, I think it is a very individual choice. There are people who feel strongly one way or another. We, we felt that they were getting socialized with other kids, uh, in a way that was better than sitting at home with a nanny, but they were only two of them. I mean, I, I don't think there's one way. Um, my response for the United States is I would much prefer a system in which people, again, could t work part-time and have the time they need for their children, for their children, and also for their parents. We're talking only about children, but parents need care too uh, at some point in our lives uh, and, and others, uh, where you could be part-time and part-time at home. But right now in the United States, you can't survive without two, career, two people working. That's a huge problem, but it's a problem women are bearing the brunt of, again, because they are the ones getting forced out. So in terms of equality, that would help. In terms of, we were talking earlier about, you know, the most important work I think you can do is zero to eight, you are forming a child's brain and determining how much she can learn for the rest of her life. That's something all of us should be thinking about in terms of what's the best combination uh, of care at home, uh, professional care, I'll say, though, that I was certain that if I had been home full-time, 
it would not have been good for my children. And they are very certain of that too. Because I tried, one, one year we were on sabbatical and you know, I, I, we, we had a great time, we were both working, but I was completely focused on you know, their school and after a year, believe me, they were. <laughs> so I, I don't mean to make light of it. I do think there's a better balance, but until we get to the point where it's seen as men and women's responsibility, I wanna make sure women have the option of, of care. I've looked at the studies on this. I don't think they, by and large, support the point of view of the article that you read. Um, but, you know, we actually don't know the answer to that question, I think, because society changes so much. So I'm reminded that when I was growing up, uh, parents were far less ambitious parents than they are now. I mean, yes, moms were around, but then there was much more to do uh, with less help to do it. and. Um, my parents for, you know, hours and days at a time had no clue where I was or what I was doing. <laughs> um, now, actually, at least in the United States and certainly above, you know, middle and upper class people, I mean, parents are, if anything, erring on the side of being too involved. And then that increases this problem of trade-offs. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not, I think just thinking about it historically and thinking about it also in terms of the social scientific literature, I'm less concerned about that than perhaps the author of the article that you read. Thank you for the answers. We have more questions. Okay, so we need to have short answers. So let's take you in the back there. Yes, exactly. Can you please also introduce yourself, say your name, what you're doing briefly? Hi, I'm Julius. I'm doing the MIA uh, here at the Hurdy School. I have a question regarding concrete uh, policy steps. So would a policy for companies that makes it obligatory for them to um, make the, uh, the, pay, the payments, the earnings for everybody um, transparent, would, do you think that would help to close the gender pay gap? Yeah, I think we have that already. We have the transparency um, regulation. So you have the right as an employee to look into the reports and have a transparency about your you know, range of people doing the same job to see how it's split between female and male and everything. So um, it's a start. Um, it's just not very many ask for the reports, though. We have to admit. So I've just seen that from a corporate uh, world, and I've done that with uh, together with the Workers' Council, working on reports and making it transparent. But the people don't tend to ask for those reports, and uh, the discussion always ends into very subjective discussions. Why he, why not me, and so on and so on. And in that, it gets very, very difficult to make it objective. So I rather think we need a more transparency report on the jobs. What do we pay on the jobs? And what are the uh, requisitions to be able to get into that job? And then having the, re on the recruitment side, we have to have a transparency as well. How many people are recruited? How is it spread? And as you see, diversity is a topic of me. So it's not only gender, it's, it's more to it and make it transparency about that as well. Do we have more questions? There's one in the way yes, back there. Yes, one in the back there. Uh, 
Hi, my name is Linda. I'm visiting the Hearty School today. Um, thank you for sharing your great stories about your journeys. Now, I'm curious about the role of parenting and parenthood in raising sons and daughters who are aware about the struggle of equality at work. What uh, insights would you share about your journeys in parenting your, your children um, with us? Yeah, in just raising sons who are aware of the struggle of the woman in the workplace and also uh, at home, and uh, daughters who are sensitive about men's um, choices to you know, explore jobs and not necessarily be uh, stuck in one place. Thank you very much. So I can only talk about sons, because that's what we have. Um, <laughs> and um, I, there is a research on this, though, and the research suggests that modeling it is the most important influence. So I think our kids do have a very flexible view about how this can happen. Yeah, they and, think women can't cook. Right. And, uh, <laughs> um, isn't that true? No, sorry. Uh, and, um, uh, I, and, and that's because they've seen it close up. Um, I do think, and I'll say something a little uncomfortable here, that um, when men think about their role in society and how they're perceived, they're thinking, among other things, about how women perceive them. And so I think modeling how women view this in men is an important and delicate thing that also needs to be dealt with. Yes. I, I will say, and I've talked a lot about that, that, that I, the woman has to model that she thinks a man who is as competent at home as at the office is a very attractive man. And that men who don't know how to manage at home are lacking something, as opposed to a more traditional view of masculinity. And that is really important, because men respond, obviously, not just to what you say, but the signals you send. Yeah, it's, it's all about role modeling. So I have a daughter and two sons. And um, I mean, they really, I mean, they really get upset if they come home and other children tell them that um, you know it should be that way or that way, they they get in fights, mm. saying you know no my father is doing that my mother's doing that they can both cook, <laughs> uh, they can both wash, and they have the right to do that. So they really I mean after they they've brought I mean they're brought up like that so so it's just so natural and the choices for the partners is natural as well so they they don't get treated as if they should do something like someone else is expecting them to do they are just you know seen as individuals and respected and if someone else would come up to them and say you know you should do that they would never agree on that because they have seen the role model just being it's arguing Yes, yeah, it's well. tough, <laughs> it's difficult, um, but it's, it's still, I mean, you have the choice, the individual choice, and you are not put into the box. So they really get upset if someone starts to put them in a box. And I think this is what we need for the future. And if we talk about leadership in the future, and we couldn't come to that because we are still in the gender topic here, but it's like we want someone to moderate and want, want to be inclusive because every perspective, every individual is worth to be heard. And this is what they, you know, they learned during their coming up. And, and they know it's difficult, but they value that they don't want to be seen as something, but as individual. We had more hands. Yes, please, over here. With the classes, perfect. 
Thank you. Linus Platzer also visiting. So my question is, apart from public policy, what kind of specific changes um, do you think we could make or do you have any suggestions uh, in the culture of the workspace in order to achieve greater equality? So I really like the example you gave with the Excel tool um, because I think of it as a socio-technical, uh, technological innovation there. Um, but I'm also, when I think of some of the examples that you mentioned, like promotions or others are um, networking cultures or buddy systems, availability, formalized work times versus flexible work times. Um, I think there's a lot of things that still hinder more equality and um, maybe you have other ideas, but taking away of some of the um, workspace cultures that we have would also be seen as something like taking a, that that is like a damage or loss to the people who hold who basically control the hierarchy of workspaces right now so I'm, if you i'm curious if and if you have any ideas uh, we both do i'm sure so I'll, i'll just say a couple um one and this goes to what you were saying earlier we actually new america publishes the range of salaries per rank so we, you don't have to request for a report we publish it And that actually helps because everyone sees it, right, in terms of pay equity. And so you do. You get people, not always women, can be men too, saying, wait a minute, so-and-so is in my category and they're making X and why, why am I not? Um, other things, I mean, the biggest one that I would say is results-oriented management. In other words, that what matters is not your presence but your performance. And if you can show me that you are getting the job done, Uh, I do care that you be in the office some, right? I mean, because we really do need, to, you, you need a, a culture that depends on people being in the office a certain amount of time. But if you want to be at home, you know, in the mornings to write, if you need to, be, and particularly if you ha uh, have caregiving responsibilities, you want to organize your schedule, what matters are the results. And if you're delivering the results, that's, that's how I manage. That's not so easy for the manager because you then have to specify what those results are, but that to me is the, the biggest change we can make. Yeah, I, I have invented it so in all the um, different corporate environments all. So we had mentoring, we had sponsoring, we had the whole flexi flexibility agenda, we had the gender pay gap reports, and we have to admit in Germany we are not very transparent in salary. You don't talk about Trans uh, transparency or what you own, what I own, I won't tell you. So, um, <laughs> so you really have to, you know, have to push all the instruments. And then we have something added uh, during the last two years: it's succession planning. Oh, yeah. So you have to have a gender-neutral um, succession planning in all the uh, next levels you uh, you can climb on. And in recruiting. I gave everything back to the headhunters that didn't show any female on the long end on the short list. So it was easy. And the first time we started discussing, the headhunter brought one woman on the long list, and they were very proud. So I pushed it back and said, I want it on the short list. You know, in the end, we want the last three to be at least one woman or two or whatever. And um, all those instruments had to be embedded, but At the end, it's during those promotion and roundtables, the micro-messaging. Mm -hmm. So if, if I'm in a round of roundtable and a manager says, you know, we have to have another woman on the succession slate, that's why I brought her. 
I stand up and ask them and say, oh, she's not good? No, of course she's good. She's working. So why did you say, that's why I brought her? That's the little thing, the behavioral issue, the cultural issue. You really have to stand up and say something. And the people start rolling with the eyes if they talk about this gender issue. And I get, you know, they are really tired of you inventing one more instrument, saying now in succession planning, and now everyone is green if it's, you know, if you have a female on your succession plan. But you really have to stand up for it. And if people start, you know, this in-group, out-group dynamics in a board meeting where the people are just, the males stand in one corner and the female in the other. And if you enter a boardroom, you see all those bags, you know, because, you know, they have been working for years together. You see still that. You, you need a buddy, you need a mentor, you need a sponsor who's just breaking those rules. And it's not only gender issues, it's just, you know, you trust, the people trust the people they know. And as, as far as where did they study, you know, so even though I have the gender mix, they all studied all at the same university. It doesn't bring you anywhere because you, you need the perspectives. You need to be innovative. You need, need to see something different. So you really have to stick to that, um, just breaking those macro messaging and breaking those in-group, out-group dynamics. And it's not only, as I said, male, female. It's like belonging to one university, have studied there, you know, have you been internationally wise? Do you have a background? Do you have all the diverse perspectives in one person? Then you are perfect. No, it's just the inclusiveness piece. Thank you. We had more questions. Um, over here. Thank you for this uh, great talk. Um, my name is Ikram. I'm from Algeria. I used to serve as the chairwoman of Amnesty Algeria. And I could relate to many things you have mentioned earlier. And my question to you is that um, recently Algeria has been experiencing uh, the strikes. And um, how could you open the minds of the men in a community where men, most men, or the majority of men feel their masculinity threatened by the success of women or by them getting more rights and having an equal uh, community, and uh, what are the best initiatives you have seen in this um, field? I mean, recently we have experienced men threatening women who participated in the demonstration to burn them with um, acid liquids, which makes doesn't make any sense. Thank you. I'm glad you asked that question because I was, you know, as I started out, I said this is a very privileged discussion uh, and not just because of, of income and education and everyone who's in this audience, but also because we are talking about two countries where the basics are there. Now, there's, there's still problems. There's problems of violence against women. There's problems of domestic violence. But relative to what you're talking about, you know, we have we are in a different world, right? We're in a world and, uh, in which uh, the idea that women are entitled to equal rights is not challenged. The reality is different, and we have enormous uh, ways to go on, the, on that, but this, the idea that women and men are, are equal, that 
women are not the property of men, that it, it is a man's masculinity does not depend on, on essentially practically owning the women in his family. Uh, so I do often say that you really have to you have to think differently when you think globally because the places to start in Algeria are not men taking care of their their children. The places to start uh, are really changing cultural attitudes at a much deeper level. Uh, I do think in in societies where you see positive change, it's where women are able to earn something. So you value more the, the, the woman who, who can earn, and to earn she has to be educated, and if she's educated, she also has a better chance of controlling the number of children she has. Uh, so women's education, women's economic opportunity, uh, and one hopes strong male leaders who will make clear that it's the weak man who is threatened, not the strong man. But that's that's a lot. We have time for one more question, but if you want to add to the answer. I just want to add financial independence yes. is so important, and that's why we have seen a lot of corporate programs and public programs where we invest all together in you know, winning women initiatives in education and small and medium-sized business. So everyone who can support women in their world to be independently owning and building business and their self, that helps a lot. So we'll have one last question um, here in the front. Hello, uh, my name is Thomas. I'm a journalist and I am French. And I'm specifying this because I was really surprised as a French, no offense by the, your first question. I, I do that. Uh, yeah. Uh, not to say that we are better, uh, far from it, we have a lot of things to solve still. Um, but um, I was also very surprised to discover uh, quite recently, in fact, uh, this cultural question about uh, Raben Muta. Uh, I don't know if they explained to you, but it's uh, Raven Mothers, yeah. so they are. Uh, yeah, uh, called like that, yeah. <laughs> Sorry for you. <laughs> um, so it's, I was surprised to, 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 to learn uh, this culture and that the fact that it's still going on. And uh, so I did my homework uh, before coming here and I uh, learned that, uh, for example, uh, in Germany, only 18% of the children are taking care, taken care of in a public structure. Uh, during the day, so that the, the, the parents can, can work. In France, it's uh, 41%. Uh, so since we are in the school of governance, we talked about, a lot about culture in couples, inside the couples, culture in workplaces. But in terms of governance, it isn't the key uh, to offer the choice uh, to develop the public infrastructure so that um, both can have it all or have the choice. Uh, and. Uh, is this debate actually going on in Germany? And uh, is there yeah, an actual public and political debate to drastically develop the public infrastructure so that you can have the choice? Yeah, I'm pretty sad to say yes, this debate is going on since 20 years now. <laughs> and we don't really get somewhere. So we invested and we are still discussing it. That's why I, I keep on you know, pushing it away because I've if the CEO starts, I build it to a kindergarten for my employees. That's one, you know, little, little step towards diversity within the company and society. So, yes, the debate is going on where we, we are not really getting an, 
progress here. So we can push it again. But it is one of the most striking differences, and, and many American friends that I know don't want to come home from France <laughs> when they're parents. But I, I think it's a wonderful example of how different countries are. You know, I mean, so Germany doesn't take this step, and the reasons are broadly cultural. The United States doesn't take this step because we're cheap about everything that involves social service provision. You know, the French haven't taken this step, but they have other issues, you know, so it, it really, you know, every and Algeria is even more different. So every society has different particular challenges. But I do think this underlying issue of getting men to assume more of this role ultimately is for everybody the last step, right? You can get rid of all those external things. You can live in this environment like academia, which really is flexible and once you're successful really is pretty permissive and you still have to solve this issue somehow. We are reaching the moment where we're out of time. <laughs> but I want to thank all our panelists very much for this insightful and very fruitful discussion and all the insights and experience uh, that you shared with us. We can continue the discussion um, that we started here and also learn more about the French model um, <laughs> with a glass of wine and some snacks outside because there's going to be a small reception. Uh, everyone's invited to, dis to continue the discussion. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for being on the panel. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herity-school.org. <laughs>